brother. Are you brilliant. You're here. I'm not quite sure what we're doing. Cheers. But I'm having fun already. I am too. Coffee, maybe. The alchemical brew. Alchemical brew. Coffee. The only drug. Secret bean. Ah. So, brother, what do you want to talk to me about? This thing that we do, that's sometimes called stretch therapy and sometimes <laughs> called physical alchemy, but it is really something. Yeah, it is really something. I wanted to maybe bring out some of the origins of it. Sure. Ask you a little bit about because I know it and I've heard a lot of the stories, but they don't come out at every workshop or they're not fully talked in the book. And I thought we could just bring a little bit about your your experience of how it came about in words in with you talking about it. Sure. Um, well, it really began uh, in the dance classes I went to at a place called the Australian Academy of Ballet, which is used to be near Central, where Central Station is now. It was near Central Station, but I think it's all been knocked down to make all those hideous apartments they have mm. around there. And the woman who ran the Australian Academy of Ballet was a, was a woman called Val Tweedy, and she had an assistant called Peggy, and there was someone else who played the piano. Anyway, I used to go to these classes that are called limber classes, mm -hmm. and that's why we use the word limbering rather than mobility in our current work as a kind of homage to, to Val. And she taught some incredible ballet dancers, but this particular individual um, that she was confronted with one day was me at the age of 27. I was not able to reach my fingers past my knees with my legs straight. And in fact, the, the genesis of me even wanting to become more flexible was a photograph that someone had taken <laughs> and stuck up on the gym wall, the HK Ward Gym, the famous HK Ward Gym at Sydney University, and it said Rubber Man. And that was a photograph of me after interval training one day, because I used to train with Jack Pross, as you know, one of Percy Herity's protégés in middle distance running and I, and, and I had reached down after the, after the intervals were over and intervals are a brutal workout by the way, you talk about high intensity training, that's a perfect example of super high intensity training. But I was reaching down trying to stretch myself out and my fingers were just maybe half an inch below my knees and someone took a photograph of it, this is back in the days of film and that photograph ended up on the gym wall. So I was thinking, well, I know I'm strong enough because, you know, I had a reasonable squat in those days and, and I know I'm aerobically fit enough. Resting pulse rate used to be about 42. Wow. Um, but maybe this missing element could be flexibility. Mm. So I thought I'll take myself along to dance classes before work. And I did. I turned up every day and I was their worst student by far. I mean, I couldn't even sit on the ground with my legs apart, you know, sit up straight. And all these other kids that I was training with, they were, they were all dance students, as in full-time dance students. So they're, you know, they would be sitting in side splits or front splits or doing full back bends, whatever, and then moaning and groaning and complaining about how tight they were that day. That, that's how. And then there was me. <laughs> this, and I realised, and this, this is something I wrote about, I think, in, in one of the books, I realized that they actually lived in a different body to the body that I lived in, and that was a revelation. To, be, to become aware of that was an incredibly important thing. Coffee. Sacred substance. Mm. So, the time that I spent with Val, I went, I went to these limber classes every morning um, I can't remember what time they were, I think reasonably early, half past seven or eight o'clock, something like that. And to the 
the live played by the piano player music wasn't nobody used recorded music in those days but it's all sort of now reach out like this and hold like that and do something <laughs> else and of course all these kids were moving beautifully that was something else i realized later and i moved like i was like shifting heavy locomotive box cars around in a mm. rail yard that's what my movement looked like there was no softness or subtlety to it at all and the realization that I had that these kids lived in a body that was completely different to mine, that was the absolute shocker. But mm. I also became aware of a number of other things over that two-year period. And that is that the methods that they used to become flexible were completely hopeless and ineffective for me. Mm. Now, I was locked into a, a well, muscle-bound body, basically. Now, I had never done any flexibility training at all. And also, and this is a very common story for many people, I think, is that I had no natural inclination to doing flexibility training, but I was naturally strong. Mm. And what do we do? We, we get stronger we and tighter. And that is, that, that's such a common pattern. So it wasn't really until I went to Japan that the, the first breakthrough, the first inkling of a breakthrough occurred. And I, and I remember the moment vividly. I was in a ward gym, a kuyakusho gym they're called in Japanese, and every ward in Japan has a local gym, um, you know, full of the usual equipment the gym mm. has. Even in those days, it had treadmills and it had, um, it had, you know, uh, Olympic machines, not Nautilus machines, but the, the, mm. the, the cheap machines, all cable-operated cable and plate-type machines. Um, but, and I was using one of the leg press machines. I was stretching legs apart and I pulled these muscles in my groin a couple of times and pulled them quite badly. One, one pull that I had done, and that didn't, I wasn't able to stretch for six months, that, that line. Mm. But I, what I did, I had my legs apart and I had my feet against um, the edges of the machine and I reached forward to this bar that was just in front of me and I pulled myself towards it to get a better stretch. And then... And this is way before I heard of anything called PNF or anything like that. I thought, well, I'm just going to try to pull back against that. So I straightened my back and lifted my chest and I mm. pulled back with my leg muscles. I made sure I was pulling back with my leg muscles. Um, and I pulled back. I don't know how long I pulled back for. Probably 20 or 30 seconds, any longer than we mm. normally do now. And then I, then I instinctively took a breath in after because, as you know yourself, when you do any contractions, you'll always hold your breath. So... Mm. Mm brace the body hold the breath yeah. and so i took in a breath and i relaxed and, and then as i breathed out and this was this this revelation was like a bolt of lightning because when i pulled myself forward again the point that i'd stopped at was no longer there yeah. now when i got past that point to the next point that point felt exactly the same as the first point but the fact is the perception i realize now the perception that that was my limit that was not accurate yeah. and in fact as you know, our minds are lying to us all the time. And that was just the most graphic demonstration I've ever had of that. And so I uh, immediately, because I had, I, I, at that point I was living in Japan and I, I was living on my own. And every night, basically I was reading and practicing light on yoga, um, Mr. Anger's great book, and also listening to Miles Davis, as I mentioned to you <laughs> once before. What a combination. Miles Davis has, has had a massive influence <laughs> on me. And I just, that's all I had. I had a wonderful stereo, because I used to do copywriting for Japanese um, electronics companies. And as one of their thank yous, they let me buy one of their top-end stereos at, at wholesale price. So absolute bargain price. Mm. So they're miles on the, on the one hand and, and Iyengar's book Light on Yoga on the other. And what I did was I used this contraction, I called it contraction then, we, we've refined it a little since then, mm. but I applied that 
technique to every pose that I could that I could break Iyengar's yoga poses down to. So we'd look at it from the perspective of our work now we would say I broke those poses down into what we now call their functional units of flexibility so mm-hmm. it could be we, we might say this this forward bend for example over straight legs is a hamstring stretch and a lower back stretch and various other things and so I had the intuition that maybe if I broke these things up even further and stretched each of those individual parts using the same technique and then combined them that that would help achieving the final pose. We've we've come light years beyond that since then. I, as you know, Greg, my brother, was the one who pioneered the bent leg approach, and I must say I resisted his <laughs> suggestions for, for at least a year. But when we actually, and we've really refined that bent leg approach now, and we, mm. and we now understand why it's so effective, but the bent leg approach on top of the contraction approach or the bent limb approach, which deactivates the protective mechanisms that are really responsible for the false impressions mm. that we have of our own range of movement, they have literally revolutionized our work. And a huge number of yoga teachers, as you know, have taken this approach and taken it back into yoga, and it's been very successful for them there too. Yeah. So that's just the, the rough story. So to sum that up, it was just a, a truly serendipitous discovery, which I then, when I went back into the literature later, I'd actually come back to Australia, so that would have been, I would have been 35, 37 then when I started to go to university. It was only then that I started to research the neurophysiology behind this phenomenon that I knew had worked in in me because that had transformed my body. The the four years that I spent in Japan working on Iyengar's poses, I was so, so flexible when I was in Japan. In fact, I was so flexible, my back was hugely unstable. I remember, for example, I was walking to teach a yoga class one day at a local gym called Clark Hatch, which is probably still there, and I stepped off a curb, and the curb would have been no more than two, possibly three inches high, and I was thinking about something else, so I wasn't paying attention. Note to self, pay attention. But I stepped off this curb, and I felt this lightning shock in my lower back. And I went ahead, and, and I kept walking and taught the class and went back home. But when I walked up, woke up the next day, I got up, and I had a full-length mirror on one of the doors in one of my, one of my six-mount rooms, and I looked at my hips, and the indentation on my waist was completely straight on the right-hand side. There was no hip, and the left-hand side looked like this. My hips had literally looked mm. as though they'd been displaced laterally by three or four inches. Mm. It was freaky to see, honestly. And, in fact, that's, that, that persisted for nearly six months. Mm. And no treatment that I got for that was in any way effective for it, none. It was time and stretching. Now now I know what I really needed to stretch with my hip flexors. Mm-hmm. We never had any effective stretches for hip flexors in those days. All the conventional ones, including all the poses in yoga that are described as hip flexor stretches, are not because of the lack of that alignment that we know is necessary now. So that, I mean, that's in a nutshell where the approach came from and then later on when I started teaching at the uni and people like Jennifer joined and then or much later on people like you um, and my brother and a whole bunch of other people were involved in it we you know it was a it was a quite a big thing at the ANU as you recall the contrib- we, we learnt we literally made the system up based on exposing people to the challenges that every exercise is and watching how they dealt with it and then changing it to make it more effective. Mm. And the word in Japanese is uh, kaizen, I think it means constant improvement. Well, that's always been our approach, or Taleb would call it tinkering now. Mm. It's always been 
our we were tinkering way before, well, practically before Taylor was born. It's, it's that thing as well where you had the insight first and then did the yes. the research and the yes. even so you had the the contract relax approach insight in the gym there, but you also the curb for me seems like it's the insight that created the the practitioner stream. Whereas you, uh, you more were more than that, the, um, I realised. Uh, well, for example, I've got I've got photographs. I think you've seen them at home where. I put myself in the full lotus position, put my hands on the ground, go up into a handstand from that position, tuck my legs in behind my arms and then rest in a, I don't know what you call that, it's kind of a variation on a crow pose. I had a whole sequence that took about two and a half minutes to do that went from every one of those bakasana transitions. And so I was really flexible and quite strong in those days, but the stepping off the curb showed me an immense weakness in my body. Mm. And so it was It was really at, towards the latter end of my stay in Japan that I started to work on strength work much more seriously. And then when I came back to the ANU, I got stuck into it again seriously. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've lost some of that flexibility. But the flexibility that I had was an unstable flexibility. And the work that we've done, particularly in the monkey gym stuff and you know taking on adult gymnastic strength training and all that kind of thing, which is a much later development, that has literally redressed those imbalances one by one that's also tinkering you yeah. try something it doesn't work or you end up in pain you think well that i'm going to do that again mm. that's what i'm talking about the constant approach it's really two things it's paying attention paying attention to what's actually happening not what you want to happen but what's actually happening right because mm. we all live in a dream world in that respect it's paying attention to what's actually happening and being thorough enough to be able to to relate that back to the one day, two days, five days, ten days, two months, six months perspective in the immediate past and then calculating that result. Well, that's a, that's, that's a potential dead end. We need, to, we need to put that one aside and we need to find new ways of moving forward. That's, that's our mm. approach in a nutshell, as you know. I know. Very, very cool. <laughs> it's interesting as well that the insight quite often happens. So I had read, for me personally, I had read the introduction to your your book and it was interesting because beforehand doing martial arts and strength work, I, and I was opposite because I was quite flexible already, mm-hmm. at least in my upper body and spine. The hips were a different story. Um, but I had flexibility. Who cares about that? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Why, why do I need that type sure. of thing? I hadn't had any pain or injuries per se I had little things but nothing as debilitating as your back and so I eventually got convinced by Chris to go along potentially as a increaser for martial capacity like okay and then you turn up in this class and you stretch there and it was a very strange thing but then Mm. you go ah this is this is all right and I would actually get my stretching done because there wasn't anything else to do but stretch And it was funny because there's a different order of these things. So very, very soon you get to experience that everyday miracle of you contract and it goes further than Mm. it did before. So very, it happens in every class, every time we do, but it's quite a, if you take it back and actually look at it, it's quite. It changes the way you approach your own body. It does. Because as I I say, in workshops all the time, your perceptions are lying to you all the time and, and your perception or not just perception, it's a, it's a perception based on direct experience that you, that's the end of your range of movement. It's a lie. That's, it is. That's the incredible thing. And, and This is what I want to talk about because it was... So I went from the beginner's course and I went to the advanced class and I'd met you. And soon after that, I was a guinea pig. 
slash training partner to you, which was very informative for me. And even then, I had, I'd had i have a lot of big breakthrough stretches. But then there was this one particular one where we were doing hip flexors. And I, every, I clearly every remember that. Every cell in my body was just going... Screaming. My hip flexor is about to snap off. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm coming out. And you were very diplomatic, and it was perfect timing that... You were just like, we can come out, but just see if you can contract again and do five breaths yes. or something. And at that moment, it was just, no, because the what body's the hell are you talking about? The body's experiencing sheer panic. It is. It was a very interesting thing. But then I was like, okay, let's let's see. That's just that tinkering thing. That's and it. I contracted and I dropped. It felt like about six inches. It was probably about it an probably inch. No, it was more than that. Maybe a bit it more. It could have been close to two. But yeah, all of a sudden your back leg was on the floor. The thing is, it, mm. you would have gone further, I think, had the floor not stopped you. But that's the goal. That's the goal. The, floor. the experience was because not only did I not have my hip flexor snap off, which is good, was like that there was yeah. the 100% likelihood of that's what that sensation at that time I was experiencing was telling me. So that was a big inversion. But then also all the, the charge of the stretch. And it's that thing. It's not people when they have not stretched, they have normally either pain or not pain as their sensory lexicon. Yes. But then when you stretch for a while, there's this million shades of everything in there. Well, as John Donne said, there's <laughs> the, in, the universe exists in a grain of sand, and that's exactly the experience in your own body. All of a sudden this window opens up, and mm. you think, holy shit. What else am I wrong about? That was my big yeah, my, that's was, what that I was my big thing. What else have I been mistaken about? It's exactly the thing I got from it because it was not only the pain and everything disappeared, it was actually I could hold for more breaths than yes. I thought I could. Yeah. And it was it was that that experience of it was wrong. What I was sensing was incorrect. Inaccurate. Yes, exactly. And that's a and it is that thing. It opens up everything. Well what else am I perceiving that's incorrect? Yes. And that's a can of worms. Turns out, <laughs> turns out everything. <laughs> yeah, and yet, and yet, having Most said things. that, that can't be true, um, in one sense, because look at the way we're sitting. Um, in order to sit, we have to have our bottoms on something. We're sitting; our heads are higher than our hips. Mm-hmm. Our heads are closer to the sky than our bottoms are, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so gravity is one of those things that can't just be wished away. Or Definitely. our the experience of gravity in the body is accurate, I think. Mm but its experience of it and the perception and the meaning that's attributed to it, they can be completely mistaken. Mm-hmm. So the, the gravity thing is, is reality, but the meaning that we attach to it, that's a much more flexible. Mm. Not to say that we can overcome gravity by some mental effort, that's never going to happen, at least not in my experience, but who knows, Possibly that's wrong <laughs> too. Um, but, I mean, it is an important point. We. There are limits that do apply in the experience of life, mm. and gravity is one of those things. When you jump up, you jump up onto boxes, you're going to be limited to mm. how high you can jump, you know, given your current strength level and your capacity to exert your force over time and all those kinds of things. But as we also know from the other work that we do, those things too can be changed. But the brute fact of gravity, in my experience, can't be changed. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a balance and this is, in my view, part of the whole process of waking up, is to see more clearly which of those things appear to be, at least at this stage in our understanding, immutable, and the things which are, which mm. appear to be solid and which are not solid. That's mm. what I find fascinating. And finding the ones you can work with. Yes. 
That's what it's about. That's the, the vast effective. majority of things we can work with. Mm. But I, gravity, I've been thinking about, a lot about that lately. <laughs> <laughs> gravity, as I walk up and down the stairs at Greenwood Point, you know, 30, 40, 50 times a day. Refreshingly constant. Yes, it's mm. constant. Yeah, I was up on the ceiling down at Greenwood Point the other day looking at where we put the <laughs> solar panels and the ceiling on, at Greenwood Point is um, precisely 808 metres, 625 millimetres off the datum point. Mm. I say I know that because when we, <laughs> when we built our house at Greenwood Point, we, quote, breached the height limit for the Greenwood Point development plan and uh, we had to resubmit our plans to get an extra 125 millimetres. Just, and the 125 millimetres is just a little tiny peak at the top of the roof. Now, could you even see that? I mean, could anyone measure that? Well, if, if you have very, very expensive equipment, you can measure it. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, so they're, they're the council things that we've been dealing with. <laughs> you talk about resistance in the universe. Councils are a resistance in the universe, yes, and are. they're real. They are. They're very, very true. Yeah. So... One element that we have not talked about, we've had the kind of genesis of the PNF, stretch teacher, stretch therapy, but the, the final chapter of the book, the relaxation element, oh. how did that come into it? Something that's been happening on, my, on the workshops recently is I've been saying to people, um, people who who are absolutely convinced that a certain level of tension is necessary. I mean, again, it's just a belief. But I've said to people, look, I understand what you're saying. Yes, and of course, if we're going to exert force, we have to create tension. But I said, the difference between your body and my body is, and this is especially true for guys who are doing lots of strength training, mm. is that I can exert the force, but then as soon as I relax, as soon as I stop exerting the force, my body becomes completely soft. You might remember Rafe wrote something about that on, yeah, his, on his site. Um, but I realize that when I stand up, and of course this is true for everyone, or it can be true for everyone, when I stand up and I have my weight on my legs, my leg muscles are soft. Mm. So I get people to come over and just wobble them around. And people will say, how can that happen? I say, well, that's the design of the body. Mm. We have a little bit of hyperextension in the back of the knee joint, or just like when you're doing handstands or against the wall handstands. If your elbows hyperextend just enough, you can hold yourself up on your bones, mm. and you only require a tiny force to keep the arms straight. And so on, I'm not digressing slightly, but on one of those workshops recently, it was in Hong Kong, no, Singapore it was, um, a, a boy there who'd been doing a lot of gymnastic strength training couldn't actually straighten his arms, very, very strongly developed brachialis. Mm. And so we did that stretch for him to help him achieve hyperextension, and he got a perfect amount of hyperextension in both elbows, and it took about three minutes to do. Mm. But you know the techniques that we use. But the thing is that then that then meant that the support that he required for handstand was completely changed. And so w one of the one of the mottos, watchwords, or mantras of our work is: before adding strength to a structure, we need to remove the resistance, the mm. resistances in the structure first. And for most people, that's going to be hip flexors, it's going to be biceps, brachialis, brachioradialis in the arms. And there are various other places around the body that we know for all sorts of different reasons to do with culture, to do with daily life, how we actually don't sit on the floor and all those kinds of things. Um, there are predictable patterns uh, and restrictions around the body in most people's bodies these days. Hip flexors are chief among them. Mm. But the point is this, when you can relax enough, 
your experience of everything in normal life will also be changed by that too because, and this is, I don't think I've seen this written anywhere, but the more relaxed your physical body is, the more open you are to all the sensations around you in the environment. And perhaps we could even mention or say we're more open to energetic influences around us as well, and I'm sure this is the case. Because tension, tension is protective. It's meant mm. to be a barrier. It's yes. meant to it's meant to be between us and the world. At least this is how this body in this world, in this universe, constructs the experience of life. Every, uh, and Reich was the first person to say this, at least in the West. He said, every, every insult to the child is compensated for by a layer of tension. And in time, when enough of those layers accumulate, he talked about character armour. Mm. When you become flexible enough, or when you become relaxed enough, and I'm going to get round to answering your question in a second because there are basically two ways you can achieve that same result. When you get relaxed enough, you'll find that your capacity to exert force will only be enhanced, not reduced, which is a, a surprise to most people because of that ludicrous research which says that you can't exert maximum force if you've just done a hugely intensive stretch. Not that anyone who ever teaches stretching ever recommends that. Mm. And that's accurate. If you do a very powerful stretch, you won't be able to exert maximum force for a while afterwards. Mm. But that's not how we use it. Um, once you have increased the range of movement of the muscles which limit the joint's excursion up to the point where the joints themselves reach the end of their limits, and most people never get close to those limits, but mm. we have certainly come close to them. Um, then you find that the resting muscle tonus, the actual tonus that you have in your body as it sits there now, is very much reduced compared to the average person. Mm. That's no unnecessary tension. No, well, that's say. one of the. That is definitely the the mantra of our work. No unnecessary tension. What is that? A world coming to an end. Possibly. It does sound a bit odd, doesn't it? Anyway, so the relaxation stuff. I realise, and this happened when I came back from Japan, but I realised that the pursuit of or the cultivation of the direct experience of relaxation in the body would only help this other thing that we've been talking mm. about. So the way I think of it these days is, yes, following practices like yoga nidra or guided relaxation or the hundreds of other names that are given to these lying, generally lying practices and staying awake while you do the practices so that you have the experience in your body of being fully relaxed um, in the physical body but when the mind is bright and clear and alert mm. and awake, that's a unique experience for most people. I didn't have that experience. I learned it in your deep well-being course. It was a very... I was getting, it was similar to with the big hip flexor thing, where you actually, people ask you, like, are you relaxing? Like, yes, I've, I've had the experience of relaxing, but it's what I call illusion of difference. So if you're extremely highly stressed and you go to moderately stressed, it's very relieving and relaxing, but there's no, it doesn't actually get to maybe a physiological relaxation response, or you don't actually, you don't have that other so you don't you you don't have the full spectrum. So it when I finally an, had it's it, it's not an option time, that you can access. No, and I had that experience of like, fuck, this is deep relaxation, and yes. it was a new experience. I yes. might I probably had it in childhood and had it all covered up with character yes. armor, but yes. it's a very fascinating thing, and it plays into that discussion we had recently on the forums about flexibility and suppleness, and there's all these other elements to it. Yes. So flexibility for me. 
is the observable range of motion that we can see. Yep. Yep. But suppleness is this other thing. It's the a tactile, a, yes. the state, yes. all these other things that go along with less tension. Yes. Uh, um, there's, I mean, we could literally talk about this for we hours, but, l- but let, me, let me make some, some of the key points. My experience working with now tens of thousands of people is that there is absolutely no point in telling someone that it will be useful for them to relax. In fact, it's just likely to in- increase mm-hmm. the tension in their body, not decrease it, unless they've actually had enough experience of being aware of the state of deep relaxation so that it's an option that they can return to at mm. will. And it takes a considerable amount of time to it experience does. that. But when I'm working, and this is what I was mentioning before about asking people to come and feel my body when I'm teaching on a workshop, when I'm working, when I'm sitting here now, the muscles in my body, muscles in my back are completely soft. So, the, so, and this comes from alignment. You might remember that time when, when you and I were congratulating each other on being able to hold that wall handstand <laughs> for two and a half minutes and Olivia came up and threw herself up against the wall and held it for seven minutes mm-hmm. while talking to us about how it's all about alignment. I never forget that lesson mm. because it is all about alignment. And so, but alignment is not about holding yourself in a particular way according to a formula or an ideal. It is about removing restrictions so that your own ideal alignment can emerge by itself. Mm. And that's something I believe that's unique about our work. I like that. The, the, you talked about it just before as well, the finding the primary inhibitory vectors yes. and targeting them. And you can do all the other type of work at the same time even. This is what I've been saying on workshops recently, which you haven't heard because you haven't done one of the workshops recently. But I, and when people say, well, look, how shall I practice? So that's easy. I'm now very clear on what's easy. What is easy is you find the exercises or challenges, as we call them on the workshops, that most profoundly affect you in the most negative way. Mm-hmm. Grasp the nettle, concentrate on Grasp two or three. Grasp the nettle and concentrate on two or three of those once a week. Yeah, that's how I'm stretching as exactly. well. Exactly. So yeah. only the things that you don't like. And the ones it, you hate the most, but if you're willing to yes. accept that you have to stretch the tightest thing possible, and that's what it's about. And look, what a metaphor that is. If you are willing to accept the the things about yourself, I mean, few people are, but if you are willing to really work on the things about yourself which you know need working on, mm. then there's no limit to the, the transformation that's possible, I don't think. Mm. But confining it just to the physical body, if you're talking about what my friend Paul Check used to call the best bang for the buck approach, it's always a case of going to the, the most restricted part and working on that even though that will feel the least pleasant to do. And that doesn't mean that your the whole of your stretching experience has to be, you know, suffering, not at all. What you do is you do your mobility work or your limbering work or your roll what we call the rolling around on the floor stuff right. um, every day. Mm. and you do the parts of your body and you can stretch the things that don't need stretching because that just feels good that will just be experienced as sensation nothing more a pleasant sensation but your hip flexors if it's if it's hip flexors it's not for you and i anymore hip flexors are the last thing i need to stretch it's actually hamstrings for me again and that's another thing it's cyclic when i spend time sitting down editing in particular video editing or writing a book it's always my hamstring that suffer. So I'm building myself a, a standing desk, by the way, down at Greenwell Point. Oh, um, yeah, it's, I want to move from sitting on the floor like this to sitting on a chair and then standing all in the same space. Mm. That's how we're going to be working from now on. Mm. But it is possible, and I think it's hugely desirable, it is possible to experience this life without that protective tension. And there was a, mm. an absolutely marvellous post on the forums which you haven't yet by Olga, who is a girl, 
woman um, Pilates teacher on the Hong Kong workshop who, following... No, I didn't actually suggest this to her. She just watched the fact that I came in each day with bare feet. And this is a woman who'd never walked anywhere in bare feet in her life. And she started walking around. She said, what about all the mess on the streets of Hong Kong? Or what Don't you hurt yourself? Don't you bump into things? Aren't you going to stub your toe? And I said, well, look at my feet. No marks. No marks anywhere. No, I don't stub my toes. And why? Because when you have bare feet, you will have to pay attention. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And you're not going to step in dog shit or anything else either because unlike most people, you're actually going to be looking where you're going. It doesn't mean that it requires all of your concentration at all. It's just no. another level of awareness that's, that manifests. Anyway, she started to walk bare, barefooted, and she lives in Hong Kong. Uh, and she became aware, I mean, it's worth reading, I won't recapitulate her argument here, but she suddenly became aware that she had been low to medium level afraid her whole life about a future which may or may, I would say, would never come, but might not come. And the whole of the present moment was being poisoned by her experience, her expectation of the things that could happen in the future. And But she saw it clearly. This was the incredible thing. And it was walking barefoot that taught her that, not stretching. She was very flexible. It's incredible. It is very cool. It is, uh, she's had a, com- just a complete turnaround in her, in her life. It's <laughs> amazing. And she's though. written about it eloquently. It's, it's, it's mm. so sweet. And it's, it's accurate. Mm. And I mean, it could be, I mean, fear can be debilitating, or in my case it was anger, you might recall. It doesn't matter, whatever, whatever afflictions we're born with, again, if you're talking about transformation, you have to face those things mm. head on, not aggressively, but just be aware that there's this thing, right? Not your fault or anything like not that. Your fault. This thing to be, I used to say, I used to say confronted, I don't say that anymore, I say there's this thing to be aware of which needs gentle handling for me gentle as you know for gentle gentle best and what did what did our, our our wonderful teacher say he was quoting a zen master who said ah the mind a worthy opponent of course this is this is what we're talking about right mm-hmm. and when we're working when we're working with the physical body people i mean we do position our work as working with the physical body but it's never the case we are never just working with the no. physical body but it's the easiest thing, it's confronting the, the others. And it's the least confronting, the least threatening. Mm. And it yields results instantly. That's the other thing. I mean, yeah, it's very tangible as well. It's immensely tangible. You can see it, you can feel it. Yeah. Mm. But let me go back to relaxation for a moment because uh, my, my road into learning how to relax myself, um, which of all the practices that I've done was probably the most useful, mm. I might add, and certainly it, it provided the gateway into all of the other things that have become part of our work. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that's the case. Well, I spent, I learned how, how to do something called self-hypnosis when I was in Japan from an ex-Vietnam vet called Marvin. Did I ever tell you this story? No, that's awesome. Oh, Marvin, Marvin. <laughs> of course his name's Marvin. Marvin was a marvel. I'm not, not exaggerating. He, he said to me, he, it was just brilliant. He said, you, you think pretty relaxed, don't you? I said, yeah, I'm pretty relaxed. By the time I'd been four years in Japan, I was certainly starting to be a bit more relaxed. And he said, just hold up my arm. And so I held up his arm like this. And then he dropped it. Now, when, when, when I dropped his arm, it fell to the floor like a brick. It was just incredible. I thought, oh, wow, that's, just, that's amazing. Because, try it with me. When I... No, Marvin's arm fell faster than that. Mm. It was amazing. 
You talk about no unnecessary tension. Marvin, I had this feeling that if I blew hard, he'd just blow away, you know. He just, there was no tension there, almost no structure. <laughs> so he had been in Vietnam at the very beginning of the Vietnam War and had all those usual hideous wartime experiences and he had decided to live in Asia as a result of that. Hmm. Um, and he had come across some teacher of self-hypnosis and he developed it into a, a, a refined art. Hmm. So he, he was able to contact his own immune system directly for oh. example. I never talked to you about this? No, I've never okay. heard this one before. There's, there's a million stories. He was able to communicate with his own immune system directly. He had the greatest um, awake relaxation state in his body of anyone I've ever come across, but he didn't have any muscles either. He was incredibly ethereal as a being by mm-hmm. that point. But we want something in between. We were talking about this just this morning. As, as, as I, I'm probably overly fond of saying on workshops, anyone can be a saint or live like a saint or be a saint, as in play the role of a saint, if you're living on a mountaintop and being fed by the villagers. Mm. But to, to, to exhibit even slightly saintly behaviour in the hurly-burly of a big city, like this one here, that's a whole different ball game. And that's, in my view, that's worthy of aspiring to. Mm. And it's not just a question, too, of being a saint. I mean, if you're a saint and you're, you know, affecting the lives of a handful of villagers, that's, a, that's an excellent, that's not going to be our path. That's not our yeah. path. I could have ret- retreated, as you know, or retired to a monastery twice so far in my life, one in Japan and one in, uh, in somewhere else in Asia. But I think there's work to be done. There's work, we, Plenty. there is work, that, not Plenty. just work on ourselves, of course, that's obvious, completely obvious, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the where we are as a collective, there has never been a greater need for... Mm this kind of work, the, the, the work of lifting oneself out of, I don't want to say the abyss that sounds too dramatic, I want to say the asleepness is probably the best way, lifting ourselves out of this state of asleepness, the, the, the dialogue or the, the myths, the, the Disney stories that we live in, here's the best one, the one that I dislike the most and of course is the most common of the I'll just do this and I'll do this and I'll get enough money and I will, you listening to this next bit, live happily ever after, mm. right? How many people's behaviour do you know that that, even if it's not an explicit part of what they say they're doing, it is clearly something like that that's guiding, to the extent that they're guided by anything, every waking moment? There's plenty well, out there. We don't want that. Well, I don't want that and I know I you want don't want that, that either. And so, and so, what do we do? Well, I mean, we 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 teach we teach things like we teach stretching. I mean, okay, we teach stretching, we teach strengthening work, and we teach movement work. And you at, a, you at a much higher level than me, I might add. That's not the point. Um, so we're doing the best. I think that we're doing the best that we can to try and expose as many people as we come in contact ourselves to a slightly to greatly different way of being in the world. And who knows what that will lead to? I don't know what that will lead to, but that's that's the program I've set for myself anyway. And I believe you've set the similar me, program for me yourself. Too. And this is the thing that I've noticed with the work as well, and how I've been evolving it is, yes, you can increase flexibility and strength and movement, and all these things are they're cool. Mm. They're very cool. I want to do this. I do this. Other people want to do this. But it's this other thing that happens sometimes, but not always. And it's trying to triangulate it and what is the mechanisms in this one, but Sometimes when you are working with the just the body, 
via relaxation or movement or stretching or whatever, you have a ch a change in the person's pattern in their character armor in their belief system that is much wider than them just getting into a new range of motion. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't happen either, yeah. which is fascinating. Yes. And you cannot go, this will do this because yes. of that, because it doesn't. Quite it often. absolutely does not. But sometimes it does, and it doesn't have to be, we are talking about this this morning as well, it doesn't have to be some massive cathartic, oh, and then my life changed after I stretched my damn hip flexors. Mm. It can just be like me, I just plodded along, and after I had it after martial arts training, but about seven years of each, and you just look back and you go, holy shit, I'm a completely different human than I was when I began this, and I didn't even notice anything happening. I told you that, that comment that an abbot made, I, I, we were talking about, about another member of the group and I said if you notice that he's, he's, he seems different these days and this guy looked at me I'll never forget this it was a great <laughs> teaching moment he said <laughs> I mean it, the insanity of it he said you're changing with every breath or perhaps you haven't <laughs> noticed <laughs> no I hadn't noticed that's Not right yet. yeah it's a, a brilliant quote isn't it but it's funny it's, it's this thing that you can actually grab hold of your life to some tiny degree in the beginning but you can, and especially with the body, it seems to be a lot easier than a lot of mental habits or I other things. So. You just start with the body, just work on that. And there's something honest about it as well. Maybe yeah. it's because it's subjective to gravity or whatever it is, but it has some well, very it's, tangible it's rules to it. tied to the earth in a way that our mind is not tied this is to true. the earth. This, this, is true. Is, this is profound, I think. It's a very important idea. Yeah, the mind is very difficult to work with. The body is still difficult in some ways, but it's... There's an honesty about it because you can it has laws of physiology and gravity applied to it in most mm -hmm. circumstances. The physiology is reasonably similar, even though there's variants that mm -hmm. you can go, okay, this person walked in the door, their nervous system should respond to the contractile axe mechanism, and it does, lo mm -hmm. and behold. And then they apply the method that's been, it's a tinkering method, there's science behind it, obviously, which mm -hmm. is nice. But it's a tinkering method. It comes in and it works. And it works with thousands of people. And this is a very amazing thing. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the actual this. Because it's it's you can make it incredibly complex. But it's very simple. You could If you didn't know any neuroscience, if you went and taught villagers in Vietnam this, and they've never even gone past primary school, it will still work. Well, I, they I can mean, make it work. from my work in Asia, I can tell you that is accurate. Mm. So what we are collectively uncovering it the way i put it on might have been the malaysian workshop i'm not sure but but and we spoke about this once but there isn't any user's guide for the human body yet not yet people not are yet. working on it now, which is actually quite cool i know you're working on it um, but what we're really putting together is a collection of techniques and your point about it not working, any particular technique not working for this person but being, you know, revelatory mm. for that person is an absolutely fundamental part of our work. Mm. The reason we have so many tools in the toolbox, as you know as a practitioner, is that we have to be able to expose our groups to a number of different techniques at the same time and then allow each of them to find which of those techniques is most effective for them. And there... And in that exact moment, the voyage of self-discovery begins because it's no longer a process of a teacher, you know, the custodian of the of the great knowledge, you know, <laughs> dropping a few pearls before swine. It's nothing like that. <clears throat> in fact, we we have acknowledged between ourselves and and the other practitioners in our group that 
we are absolutely perfectly clear, I think, abundantly clear about this notion is that the learning process right from the first lesson is actually a two-way process and it can never not be a two-way process. Mm. We expose the students to a number of techniques and immediately they engage with those techniques. All of a sudden they're understanding something about their body which the best teacher in the world cannot know and feel. We, mm. when that's not... We are, at least at that level of understanding, we are actually separate at that point. Mm. But the student starts to acquire this self-understanding and that the, the levels just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And if we're paying attention, we're watching this process happening and we're learning about the process that we're teaching in the instant of watching it being mm. transmuted, if I yeah, to yeah. use an alchemical word. I do word. use that word. And it's, it's, it's forever new. I was having this conversation with someone yesterday, but you can stretch do that stretch them thousands of times and you have and every time someone personally goes through something that is is of a different order of transformation it's it's, it's new it's, it's happening new. again and, and that is you've what done that stretch so many times and this time is the, the temptation though to relax at the wheel as you know and yes, to stop paying true. attention to what's actually happening in front of your very nose it's just it's just the, the seduction of being attracted to falling asleep i mean it's mm. it's it's it's, it's continuous that's the work of the practitioner is to stay there we have to stay awake and so i mean i look on the last again uh, this hong kong workshop was quite special even though it was quite a small workshop it was very special energetically and somebody said to me towards the end of it you're so enthusiastic about it. Where, do, where does that <laughs> come from? You've been doing this for 30 years. How and can you that's still what, do that's this? What she said, you've been doing this for how many years have you been teaching this stuff? And I said, well, it's a long time anyway. <laughs> and she said, well, how do you stay enthusiastic? I said, you don't understand. It's got nothing to do with me staying or exerting effort on my side to stay enthusiastic. It's so fucking exciting to mm. watch these things unfolding in the moment. It's brilliant. And look, and, and when you read Olga's you know story on the floor, you'll you'll get straight away on it. I mean, but you've yeah, seen it yourself a million times. I've and had it. What a privilege! I say this every workshop. What a privilege it is to teach. It is. It's a hell of a responsibility, but it's also an immense privilege because we see things and we are learning about things which so many people are simply not exposed to. That's mm. it's gobsmacking, actually. It is. is what it is. It really is have to stay awake. You do? I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> the coffee is... No, oh, the coffee the has collapsed. The coffee is worn, worn out. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, for me, is this thing as well in that... And I've said this to you before, but the, th the word therapy is almost inappropriate for it, which is why I use the word alchemy, because, yes. one, it's it has to be self-educating. It starts off where the relationship is teacher to student... But it's still not... That's not self-knowledge. It's not that. Because it, they have to... You cannot give them the experience and make them pay You can't give people self-knowledge by definition. That's the thing. It but is. you can create the environment. You know how that, that expression we have... Um, it's true to say that uh, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And what's my response always to that? No, well, that's true as far as that bicameral dualistic perspective goes. Mm. But maybe you can contrive to make them thirsty. I love that no one sentence. ever thinks about that, but it's so obvious that that's what we're in the business of doing. Yeah, that's the tinkering aspect, and the, that's why it's an art and more than a science. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
for me. In fact, science, you know, I told you, I've said this many times, science has very little to say. Mm. I mean, that book by Alter, the book The Science of Stretching, is, well, for me, it's a long, detailed, accurate description of where not to look. Mm. Because it doesn't, ta- it, nothing in that book, and I've digested it, as you know, along with many other things, none of those things actually ever pointed to the direction of any of the tinkering that we've done with the system. Mm. Never. We go to the books to find the perhaps perhaps the mechanism behind the effectiveness of the tinkering that we do. That's yeah, what's interesting to me. That's the heuristic thing that yes. Taleb talks about. Yes. Yeah. You, you make the tinkering first yes. and it works and yes. you repeat it. Yes. And then perhaps you find the mechanism something, behind and it. And that's really good if you can find that. And but sometimes if you, if you read it it might change a little bit, but then you can also create a new technique just you don't have to spot. understand the mechanism at all. In fact, that's called, that's called empiricism in the old days. Um, everyone wants to understand things causally, which is what we're talking about if we talk mm. about formal um, scientific perspective, to understand something causally. We'd, we like to understand cause because it makes our prescriptions more efficient. That's the only reason, mm. efficiency. But about just under half all the medicines that are prescribed currently, the site of action is unknown. 47 or 48 percent the last time I looked in MIMS and did Mm. a rough count. Does that make the prescription, in fact the mechanism behind how disparin works or aspirin works was only discovered a little while ago as you know, did that make it any less effective as a headache treatment? Mm. No, because we know it's effective, we know Mm. it works, we don't know how it works. And so our speciality I think is knowing what works rather than how it works, even though we do understand something about how it works as well. For me, it was also, this was an interesting part of the learning experience because I was very attached to the knowing. Because it was a very, it's a very uncomfortable thing to not know. Yes. And to feel like you know something is a very comforting illusion to have. Oh, well, you know, I've been living in the unknowing state for quite some time now in terms of scientific perspectives. I mean, the PhD research that I did was... The title of it was Relationships Between Multiply Existing Causes in Complex Systems. And that's that's a minefield, actually. But we'll say that for another another yeah. uh, topic. But I'll just, I'll just hold up this flag at this point, and that's to say anyone that treats the human body at any level, you're never treating a single cause. I mean, unless it's a broken bone or something where the, the fundamental mechanism nice on a gross scale has been dislodged and you can put it back, but the body still has to heal itself. But if you're talking about any of the problems that, say, a chiropractor or an osteopath deals with or most general practitioners' problems, they are never single-cause problems. Patterns, maybe. They're patterns. And so what's the relationships between the existing causes in those systems? No one can tell you. There's no simple set of heuristics for guiding illumination in that direction. And that's what that work that I did in the philosophy department and the ecology department showed me so clearly. I realised we're looking in the wrong place. That's what actually led me to the spiritual work. Mm. that thing but I'm so grateful I've had had or have that scientific background yes because that gives us a process understanding which has only strengthened this other work that we do that's very exciting for me it was also unique it was almost the only way it could have happened for me is coming out of my science degree and where I was to meet you and you obviously have the science background it's quite it's quite apparent and the philosophical and it was the oddity of the bookshelf and the man is that there's this right next to the book on philosophy and the book on science and text there's this book on dharma here and this one here and this and it was just and no contradiction this is the thing zero because you will meet people who will have 
things like that, but there's an internal contradiction in the man or woman, and it doesn't fit. But with you, it was it was a fit, and that was a very intriguing thing for me to... Contradiction, let me just speak on this for a moment because my brother once said to me, he said, you're the most consistent person I know and I now don't trust consistency. Um, Well, because there's in the same way that you described that there is comfort in knowledge and the illusion of knowledge, there's also a great comfort in consistency and reliability. And even though I've spoken Mm. about the virtues of both of those things on many occasions, nonetheless, what I'm trying to do now to look deeper than that and I realize that more closely I look and I've always been comfortable with contradiction as you pointed to a second ago mm. for me there is no contradiction no. Look, here's, here's my perspective on this when you look out the window nature is presented to us seamlessly in fact there's no divisions there's no distinctions there is simply the space and the view if I can put it that way outside the windows of your eyes the mind cuts things up immediately. In the act, the very act of perception, we look at it and we say, well, that, see that, um, uh, that, particular, that particular kind of glass window, you know, the one that you can't see through? The, even the contemplation of the thing that we're looking at is already dissected, and also, in, always in the dualistic way, dissected by mm. the process that's driving the perception. And that's the mind, of course. And so once I started to see that clearly, I thought, well, that's that's very interesting. This is where we can enter our contradictions. And I once gave a paper on this to to the the um, uh, the philosophy school at the ANU. I said I said at the beginning of this paper, there's no such thing as contradictions in nature, and the whole room just went quiet. And I said, I'll just let you think about that for a moment. And so, unlike I never I never read papers the way they're traditionally done in philosophy. I just talk like this. Yeah. I said, okay. Just um, just have a moment to think about what are the contradictions in nature herself. And no one could come up with one. I said, every example that you've come up with is not a contradiction in nature. It's a contradiction in our representations or descriptions of nature. Mm. Second order process. Mm. Nature itself, perfect. Seamless, complete. Undivided. Mm. Now this is such a thing to become aware of. And that was one of the last things that, that I... That was, for me, a major point of clarity in my own philosophical development, I thought, yeah, you know what, all we're doing is we're arguing about different differences in our descriptions of things. Mm. And the description of the thing, as Korzybski said so famously, the map is not the territory, the description of the thing has no effect on the thing itself, and it actually doesn't limb its essence. Mm. It's just a description. Now, I find that an incredibly powerful idea, mm. and they're the ideas that literally drive the stuff that we're doing now. Yes. A clear, in front of my face, awareness of that restriction. Mm-hmm. And this is why I wanted to do this, because Kozipski is not mentioned in the book. No. None of this stuff is mentioned in the book. And I, G. Spencer, I'm so sorry that I haven't mentioned Alfred. G. Spencer Brown does not come up in the book. Oh dear. You see? Yes, so this okay. is the education I had, which was very different which I wanted to get on film. Oh, you mean the education that you had as a result of reading all the things in my book? Yeah, I read, I read a fair few of them, but more the you talking about these things, these epiphanies you had, like the oh, giving I of the I paper see. and the giving of this. The ones in Japan are in the book, but these extra ones don't come up. No, because they all happened, um, they all happened in my university life, and I didn't go to university, as you know, before I went to Japan. Yes, I've so the method there, but these oh, things also feed into the evolution of the method. They perhaps were not there in the genesis in Japan, but no. they would have affected it. Uh, massively. In fact, G, G mentioned G. Spencer Brown. 
Oh, I could shiver up and down my my neck, seriously, yeah. thinking about that. I read in a footnote in the introduction. It's not even in the book itself. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's such a powerful, condensed text. Oh, this is this is so so extraordinary because, in fact, the work that 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 you're doing with your current teacher, for example, this is exactly what his work is about. And I don't know whether I've mentioned this to you or not, but G. Spencer Brown said he's a brilliant mathematician and logician, genius. He he said a universe comes into being the instant a distinction is made full stop mm. all distinctions are motivated full stop that's that was it hit me with a shock of a revelation because that's exactly the we the mind divides the universe in half on an axis and the axis is always the same even though the point or where mm -hmm. the axis is put in is different that the half you like and the half that you don't like the half that you reject the half that you're attracted to. How insane is that? But that is the structure of the mind. Mm -hmm. And it was G. Spencer Brown, he said that perfect, I've never seen that quoted anywhere, but it is, it yeah. is an, an act of genius to be aware of the process of distinction. Yeah, two lines in the footnote. Very funny. Yes, that's had a major influence on our work, that's for sure. Mm. And we, we can talk about the great Korzybski if you want another time. Um, we can but, definitely. But really, he is, he is saying, you, or you can, you can stop it and if you want. And, or it, if you're going to start a fresh topic, this is stopping in 45 seconds. Well, I think, look. That was a good note. We've had some good stuff. I think this format is a success. Thank well, you. Let's, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't asked me. So let us, we will try this again. This is it. This is the, the, my experience of learning stretch therapy plus extra and it's the extra that made made it the come alive for me as well like the techniques are amazing we use the techniques but with this extended scope behind it is different order thank you mm. thank we you. will continue thank we you shall.